immoral that anyone profits off another person's need for health care. And it is repugnant to me that this profit comes from denying care. Let's put an end to this immoral system that's putting profits before patients' needs. And health care is a human right, and we are going to make it happen. That's what fascism, economically speaking, that's what it is. It's when you merge the government and big business in such a way that the government becomes the enforcer of a society of, by, and for the profits of the biggest businesses. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, your show for voices of resistance and alternative news from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and it's the third week of the month, and so today we have a new episode of The F Word, our series in which we discuss fascism. And we're excited to have as our guest today for an extended discussion, professor and author Richard Wolf, co-founder of Democracy at Work and host of the nationally syndicated program Economic Update. All that is coming up during this hour, but first our headlines. The big news out of D.C. this week impacting all 330 million Americans is the introduction of the Medicare for All Act of 2017 by Senator Bernie Sanders. The act would expand and improve Medicare, eventually eliminating the for-profit insurance industry that leaves millions of Americans without health care, forces thousands into bankruptcy, and leaves millions spending 20 to 30 percent of their incomes on insurance premiums. Flanked by health care advocates and some of the 15 fellow senators who have endorsed the bill, Sanders echoed many of the ideas that made Medicare for All the central theme of his 2016 presidential bid. Today we begin the debate vital to the future of our economy as to why it is that in the United States we spend almost twice as much per capita on health care as any other nation on earth and yet we have 28 million people without any health insurance and even more who are underinsured with high deductibles and copayments. As a result of the incredible waste, bureaucracy, and profiteering in our dysfunctional health care system, we are now spending nearly 18% of our GDP on health care, $10,000 per person. Incredibly. If we continue the status quo, we will spend an estimated $49 trillion over the next decade on health care. That is economically unsustainable for our country. Dr. Margaret Flowers, a pediatrician and director of the Health Over Profit campaign, who spoke to On the Ground last week, said in a video conference after the Sanders announcement that introduction of the bill and the endorsement by so many senators was a big step forward for those like her working for health as a human right. Flowers said that she's still studying the bill, but is encouraged by the fact that it does eliminate co-pays for patients, but she said it would be a stronger legislation if it included provisions for long-term care, 
if it clarified that all those living in the United States would be covered, and if it was implemented immediately as opposed to phased in over four years. I do want to give credit to Senator Sanders because when he held his press conference in the Senate to announce this, he closed it by saying that he wants to hear from the grassroots. He wants to hear from people about ways that he can improve that bill. So it was great that he recognized that. And it's important for us to, to recognize that that's a serious role for us to take. I often quote Gandhi, who said that you can't compromise on fundamentals because it's all give and no take. And healthcare is one of those fundamentals. Either we have a system that treats healthcare as a human right, or we have a system that treats healthcare as a commodity. And so we can't compromise on that when we're told that politics is the art of compromise and that we're asking for too much. We must recognize that all movements throughout time have been told that they were asking for too much. We're not asking for any more than what almost every other industrialized nation has in some form or another. And so when they tell us to compromise, what they're trying to do is take our power away. And we do have the power. We've shown that this year. We're at this moment because of our popular power. So um, let's not give that up. Federal aid to survivors of Hurricanes Irma and Harvey remains on the nation's to-do list. James Lee Witt, FEMA chief for eight years under President Bill Clinton, told Newsweek that billions in relief agreed to by Congress last week might not last more than a month. Lawmakers passed a combined $15.2 billion in hurricane relief, mainly for Harvey, and will be considering a separate aid package for Florida. Witt said recovery from Hurricane Harvey will cost at least $100 billion. Meanwhile, climate activists remain on the front lines, breaking news about the ways that low-income and communities of color on the Gulf are disproportionately impacted by the toxins leached from petrochemical factories in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. At the same time, activists are working to block new pipeline projects that will only add to dirty fossil fuel production and emissions. Throughout Virginia on Wednesday and Thursday, Faith leaders, environmentalists, and residents join rallies and prayer vigils at state offices to block the proposed Atlantic and Mountain Valley pipelines, which would span more than 1,000 miles carrying gas from fracking operations across Virginia, West Virginia, and North Carolina. West Virginia has removed the permit for the proposed Mountain Valley pipeline, leaving the state of Virginia in the hot seat of deciding. The Chesapeake Climate Action Network 350.org and Interfaith Power and Light organized a faith action to call on Governor Terry McAuliffe to do as West Virginia did and also remove the permit in Virginia. Reverend Laura Martin of Rock Spring Congregational United Church of Christ in Arlington spoke at the rally in Woodbridge, Virginia. We have a choice and Governor McAuliffe has a choice and the DEQ has a choice. We can make a future of renewable energy and renewable hope. We can choose to bring green jobs and the power of solar with us. It is with this hope and with this tradition that we pray and speak today. Opponents say that the Atlantic Coast and Mountain Valley pipelines would take the tops off 38 miles of mountain ridges in Virginia and West Virginia. They would seize private property across 18 Virginia counties and threaten drinking water all along their routes. Protest organizers said that the pipelines would also trigger global warming pollution equal to building 45 new coal-fired power plants. 
Thanks to Michelle Roberts for her reporting on these Virginia actions this week. September remains a busy time for activists in D.C. September 16th and 17th, organizers from around the country are gathering for the People's Congress of Resistance being held at Howard University. Also on September 16th, several organizations, including D.C. United Against Hate, are rallying at 1.30 p.m. in Northwest D.C., Farragut Square, to protest the far-right Mother of All rallies being held on the National Mall, the first gathering of the far-right since the deadly violence in Charlottesville. September 11th also marked one year since D.C. police shot and killed an unarmed motorcyclist, Terrence Sterling, as he rode home from a bachelor's party. Chantel James has more. Last September 11th was the final day of DMV resident Terrence Sterling's life, and this fact will never be forgotten by local Black Lives Matter activists. On Monday, they gathered a crowd of about 50 at 3rd and M, the very intersection where the unarmed motorcyclist was shot down by police. The action began with an early morning vigil to pay homage to the life of this innocent man. MPD officer Brian Trainer is currently still on the payroll of the police department and has never been brought to justice. And activists came together to demand from Mayor Bowser that measures be taken to censure him for ending the life of an unarmed black man last year. In the evening, those who had gathered where Sterling's blood was spilled took to the streets, eventually ending with a rally at the Henry J. Daly Building, where the MPD is headquartered. Organizer April Goggins spoke with us about next steps for the movement. The next steps are to stay low and build. We need to build people power. We need to build community defense. We need to build mutual aid. We need to be ready for what's coming and be able to sustain our lives and to be able to provide for ourselves the things that the state can or won't in order to be able to keep fighting. From Northwest D.C., this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantel. In culture and media, a new documentary about the labor leader and community organizer Dolores Huerta opens in theaters today, directed by Peter Bratt and produced in association with Huerta's foundation. Dolores is a largely sympathetic but honest biography of Huerta as a Mexican-American woman who turned her back on a comfortable life as a married mother to eventually become a national force alongside Cesar Chavez in organizing exploited farm workers. Huerta's work, which included launching the successful boycott of grape growers, catapulted her to national prominence and spotlight, where she has remained both beloved and scrutinized. In a somewhat glaring omission, Dolores does not mention the criticism surrounding her work for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign in 2016, but it interweaves her story with the story of the Chicano Movement for Human Rights and pays tribute to her contribution to social justice. The celebration of life for artist and activist Dick Gregory will be held Saturday, September 16th, 4 p.m. at City of Praise Family Ministries in Landover, Maryland. More information is at dickgregorytribute.com. And this week on Wednesday, Princeton professor Tracy K. Smith was presented at the Library of Congress in her inaugural reading as the new Poet Laureate of the United States. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, this month's episode of The F Word with Richard Wolf. Stay with us.
Well, now it's time for the F Word, our monthly segment that explores fascism, which we define as 1960s revolutionary George Jackson defined it, the complete control of the state by monopoly capital, when the relationship between the state or the government and corporations becomes indiscernible. And as we go deeper into the Trump administration of billionaires and corporatists turned policymakers, we're very pleased that our guest this month is the economist Richard D. Wolf, professor emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and currently a visiting professor at the New School University in New York City. He's author of several books, including Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown. And he's also co-founder of the social justice organization, Democracy at Work. Welcome to On the Ground, Professor Wolf. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Well, we took a break for this segment in August. And during that time, uh, self-described fascists and neo-Nazis held violent and deadly protests in Charlottesville, Virginia. And those actions referenced the kind of evoke the fascism that emerged in Europe during the 1930s, which I think for most people defines fascism. We think of authoritarianism, violence, genocide, but I don't think that many of us know about the economic underpinnings of what happened in Europe in the 1930s. So I wonder if you can start by breaking down some of those, the economics of what happened then. Sure, I'd be glad to. The similarity between now and then, and you're quite right about that, the similarity is that both then, and we're talking about the 10 years after 1929, the so-called great crash of capitalism that started in October 1929 and lasted for at least the next 10 years, that crash, like the one after 2008 that we're still living through, taught an awful lot of people that the capitalist economic system in which they were living was at best unstable and at worst capable of unspeakable suffering for millions and millions of people who had been led to believe that this was an economic system that only went in one direction, namely up for everybody, and here they were living in a situation where that obviously was not true. And what happened in the 1930s, as we had the bread lines and the, the suffering captured in American novels like The Grapes of Wrath or Of Mice and Men and many, many others, what you had in those days was a very different reaction from what you had here uh, after 2008. And that was true not only in the United States, but in, in Germany and in Italy, uh, all over the capitalist world, then as again now. What happened differently then was that the mass of working people decided that their best response to capitalism was to question it, to blame it, if you like, for what was happening to them, and to begin to seriously demand that capitalists either give way to a new and different system, socialism of one kind or another, or come up with big bucks to help people through the depression which their capitalist system had foisted on everybody. And so you had the emergence of very powerful left-wing capitalism critical movements. In this country, they were associated with the CIO, uh, the, the union movement, the greatest union movement in American history, happened in the 1930s. 
uh, bigger than anything that had happened before and bigger than anything that has happened since. And the unions were allied with two socialist parties and a communist party here in the United States. And very, very similar things happened in Germany, Italy, and so forth. The problem was that capitalists in different countries reacted differently. And here's where the fascism comes in. In the United States, for a whole host of reasons, the government at that time, Franklin Roosevelt, decided that the best way to handle the depression that he had been elected president uh, into and the pressure from the unions and socialists and communists from below, the best way was to kind of cut a deal, to give the mass of American people a new deal. That's literally what they called it, the new deal. And that included things like setting up social security, setting up the unemployment compensation system, passing the first minimum wage law that had ever been had in America, and then the biggest one, creating a government jobs program. So between 1934 and 41, the government created and filled 15 million jobs. A staggering program of taxing corporations and the rich, which is what he did, to raise the money to do these very expensive things, to give everybody over 65 a check every month for the rest of their lives, Social Security, to provide the millions of then unemployed people with unemployment checks every week for a year or two, and so on. In Germany and Italy, the reaction of capitalists to the rising demands of their own unions and workers, socialists and communists, was completely different. Their reaction economically, which I'm about to describe, is what we now call fascism, and what indeed they called fascism at the time. It was not to cut a deal with the pressure from below, but it was actually the opposite, to crush, to destroy, to repress all of those movements. So, for mm -hmm. example, in the classic case of Germany, what Hitler did when he came to power in January of 1933, that's when he got there, four years into, or three and a half years into the Depression, what he did was to literally arrest, and in many cases eventually kill in jail, communists, socialists, and all the rest. Yes, what we've heard about were the authoritarian ways he went about doing it. He outlawed other political parties. He basically made his own Nazi party the only uh, effective political force in the country by, again, arresting, injuring, killing, uh, as he needed along the way uh, to get that kind of power. But in economic terms, what it meant was that the government outlawed independent trade unions. The trade unions all now had to become part of the government uh, party apparatus, the Nazi party uh, that took over. No other unions could be allowed. As I said, the communist and socialist parties were repressed. You were arrested if you were part of that. You could be drafted into the army. You could eventually later be killed. Now, all of it was justified on the grounds that Germany had to defend itself against the world, 
nobody was attacking Germany, so this was a little bit crazy, but it's the kind of feelings in the society that were revved up by this. You had to protect Germany from Jews. You had to protect Germany from communists and socialists. And in the name of protecting against all these alleged evils, what Hitler did was really deliver the economy over to big business. He basically destroyed all the critics of big business, all the critics of capitalism uh, were removed, and the society was reorganized so that you had the big businesses who stayed in power, the same VW, the same Siemens, the same Krupp, the, all the great families of industrial capitalism in Germany held on to their businesses, but what they had was the government as their absolute enforcer. The government meant that there would be no union that they would have to worry about, that there would be no criticism of anything they did that they had to worry about. The government became organized political thug hired, if you like, by big business to build the economy around exclusively what they wanted and what they needed. And that's what fascism, economically speaking, that's what it is. It's when you merge the government and big business in such a way that the government becomes the enforcer of a society of, by, and for the profits of the biggest businesses. You know, recently when you broached this subject of fascism on your show, Economic Update, which I should tell listeners is syndicated around the country and began at our sister station, WBAI in New York, you laid out an economic definition of fascism that is similar to what we use for this segment. But then you said you would leave it up to listeners to decide if the United States either it is or heading in the direction of fascism. So I'd like to turn that question back to you and, and ask you to talk about the way that capitalism is or is not turning into fascism in the United States. Yeah, you know, that's fair enough. Uh, you have every right to do that, and I think it's actually a a great idea. So let me try to go a little further than I felt it was safe to go on my own show as you picked it up. And you picked it up exactly right. Here's what I would say. The reason we're not yet in a fascist situation in the United States follows from the little history I just gave. Fascism is usually the response of the big business community to the perceived threat coming from its victims, namely masses of unemployed people like you had in the 1930s, angry, bitter, and determined trade unions trying to do something for all these unemployed families, socialists and communists who were everywhere spreading the idea that the problem wasn't just you didn't have a job, it was the problem of an entire economic system that gave all the wealth and power to a small number of very rich folks and putting everybody else in jeopardy. Fascism was the answer to that kind of a threat. We don't have fascism in the United States yet, and to be crude about it, the reason is we don't need it yet. We don't have a strong push against big business in this country the way we did in the 1930s. The Communist Party barely exists in the United States, has no uh, political influence that amounts to anything. 
The same is true of the socialist parties. They exist, but their influence is minuscule. And the labor movement in America has been declining in its importance for 50 years. And just to give you one statistic, the, the percentage of private employees, the private sector is a major part of the American economy, uh, private enterprises. If you add up all the workers in private enterprises, 6.3% of them are either members of unions or represented by a union. The other 93% are not. In other words, you have a tiny minority of people in unions, so the unions are weaker than they've been at any time in 50 years. So with a virtually disappeared communist and socialist part of the population, at least in any organized way, and the decline of unions, you don't need fascism in America because you don't have the mass uprising to repress. But the reason I would hesitate to say we don't have any of it is that we are right now, literally as you and I are speaking, we are living through a period of time where the American people are beginning to wake up to the situation and are beginning to get angry. The Occupy Wall Street movement was a clear sign of that. The amazing support for Bernie Sanders, uh, despite all the things that were done to squash his efforts, there's another sign of that. Black Lives Matter as a movement uh, beginning to question the economics in our society. All of these and many more that I don't have time to list are signs of change and signs of rising criticism of capitalism. Even the response to my own economic update radio and television show is beyond anything any of us had imagined possible as little as three or four years ago in terms of the interest and the support. So I would say we don't have it yet, but we will be increasingly seeing signs of it uh, like Charlottesville, like uh, that attempted march in Berkeley, California that never quite came off uh, a few weeks after that. Uh, we'll see the signs of people beginning to move in the direction of fascism, offering themselves up as the stormtroopers of the future uh, to big business, so that as big business sees the left beginning to emerge, we will also see the fascistic response that you had in the 1930s resurface here. So since like Germany and what people look at as that period of fascism, writers like Sheldon Wolin in 2003 have described what happens here as a type of totalitarianism that's different, but has kind of fascist tendencies. So he talked about inverted totalitarianism where it may not be that kind of signature fascism as like the government is thug, but how resources and everything is commodified and we live in a very consumer-based culture that kind of like lulls the, the citizenry into uh, a different type of behavior that, you know, we may not have boots on our neck, but the society is organized in a way that still gives corporations the upper hand in, in everything and so in so many parts of our lives and increasingly in 
in government functions like prisons and education and certainly the military at this point, but in so many uh, spaces that used to be the, the commons. Yeah, let me, let me respond. I think it's very well taken. Your, your, your points are right on target. Maybe the way I should say it a little bit different, that we, we don't need the, the boots on our neck, as you put it, kind of fascism. But meanwhile, the other, the other side of the coin of having no left wing that threatens big business into having fascism is that the absence of a left wing, the absence of a powerful alliance between the labor movement on the one hand and social progressive mass organizations on the other, is that big business can do all, almost anything it wants without having to have thugs yet. And so you see that they're using their money, basically. They're buying the political system. They're buying both of the political parties. They make it impossible to run for office without raising millions of dollars. And they're the only ones, basically, who can provide those uh, millions in most cases. Bernie Sanders showed that you could raise a lot of money from small donations from small people. And that's a sign of the future, too. But I think you're right that the big business is able to take advantage of no opposition effectively from the left, from the labor movement, and move in and make everything a profit-making operation for them. Have the government, for example, basically atrophy the post office so that we all increasingly have to rely on UPS or FedEx or any of the other private substitutes that what the government used to do more cheaply and better for most of us is now being done by a private enterprise whose first objective is to make money off of it. And so we live in this kind of increasingly corporate-dominated bundle. And you know, the Trump administration literally takes away what little facade there had been before and simply turns the government over to big bankers and big industrialists and all the rest. So you can see in an almost daily way that we don't yet need the thug type of corporate dominance. That's fascism. We have the soft version where the corporations, having undone their critics, the left, the labor movement, for 50 years, is now free to indulge every excess of wealth, every excess of power uh, that they can imagine because it, so far they haven't yet generated uh, the opposition. So we'll see in the years ahead whether this kind of soft corporate dominance gives way to a much harder and uglier. And I think, again, that the, the beginnings of the kinds of folks who did their thing there in Charlottesville um, is the sign that those right-wing forces that usually come forward offering themselves as the thugs to the people in charge in case you need some thugs, here we are, that we're going to see more of that in direct proportion that uh, those businesses at the top feel the need of having groups like that as a counterweight against an emerging left-wing alternative. If you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org. My name is Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with Professor Richard D. Wolf. And this is our monthly segment, The F Word. We'll be right back after this break.
Welcome back to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with Professor Richard D. Wolf for this month's segment of The F Word. And before we kind of continue on with, like, what's happening today, I wanted to make sure we took a detour in the typical economics history and have you break down the economic dimensions um, rather than the better-known racial terror dimensions of Jim Crow. Yeah, I think here's some parallels, and I think the use of African Americans here in the United States is a good illustration of certain kinds of parallels. American capitalism failed miserably over the last century in providing good quality jobs at decent incomes to all its people. And that is a failure of an economic system because one of the first things any decent economic system owes the population where it exists is the provision of meaningful work on a regular basis that's secure, that pays enough to enjoy a reasonable life and give education and opportunity to your children and so on. The American capitalist system has not succeeded in doing that, but it was very clear that they were never going to admit that failure. They were never going to acknowledge it. Well then, how do you handle the people for whom you don't have the jobs, the incomes, and the places in society that a decent economy would offer? And the answer is, you blame those people. You make sure that the focus of criticism is not on the system that failed to provide what it has to provide to survive, but instead that there's something wrong with those people. And the way that was done here in the United States was to demonize African Americans, to, to portray them because they have a different skin color as if they were a completely different person, not a real human being like the white people were, all of that crazy racist stuff that has infected this society for so long played a very important economic role. It allowed the society not to feel the failure of the system to provide for everybody by basically looking at a sizable part of the population as if they weren't like everybody else, as if they weren't in some way capable of or needing the kind of secure, regular job that everybody else did. 
And it meant that you literally abused that part of the population on a continual basis. And then when the more courageous among them pushed back because they didn't want to be abused, like no one would, then you could incarcerate them, you could attack them with the police or the military, and then develop a story about how they're violent. The whole thing that we all know only too well. I'm reminded as I speak to you of a marvelous song by the blues musician Willie King called Terrorized. And it's a wonderful song because he says, why is everybody now talking about terrorism? I've been terrorized all my life as a black man in America. It's, it's a perfect example. In Germany, Hitler went around in a short amount of time and basically did the same thing to Jews, to gypsies, to homosexuals, all kinds of people that he couldn't and wouldn't provide work for. He couldn't solve the economic problem. So he turned around and said to everybody, I don't owe these people a job. They don't work. They don't play by the rules. They are evil. They are bad. Whatever it is, story could be told about them so that the population would focus on something about those people rather than to be critical of the economic system. Fascism mobilizes the people for whom jobs are created to be not critical of the system for failing to create it for their friends and neighbors, but by turning them against their friends and neighbors as if they were the problem rather than a system that couldn't provide the work. And in capitalism, because it is a system that's driven, number one, by profits, that the number one, the bottom line, so-called, is profits, it always puts the well-being of the mass of people second or third or fourth as its priority because it's there, every business in capitalism is there to make money. And therefore, when they do that, it typically turns out large numbers of people are either not employed at all or employed at awful wages or in insecure ways where they don't know from one day to the other. Capitalism always does that. It always produces these people who are victims, and so it is always tempted. That's why fascism is always lurking somewhere. It's always tempted to fake its way out of the problem, not to admit that it has failed to provide decent lives and jobs for these people, but in turn to demonize them, to make the rest of society angry or bitter or fearful of them. You know, what you just mentioned in terms of jobs being created for people who could then turn around and criticize those who don't have the jobs. I'm very uh, concerned when I see so many of the new jobs or employment that the country does create in the military and in policing and in prison guards and now with the so-called building of the border and all these border police that Trump says that he's going to hire. And it, it seems to me the perfect recipe to describe what you just said, that the jobs being created are jobs to police those that are being targeted. And these are the people who are being given guns and they're giving the license to, to carry arms and then 
we see so much in our society right now to kill with impunity. And they're not held uh, responsible. And so, you know, many people on the left, you know, when they look at it, they they do see that we're farther along on the road to living in a fascist state than they might be indicated by the economics. Because those of us living in communities where we're targeted by the police, we are faced with this naked aggression and then they have impunity to kill us. Well, I agree with you, but I, maybe on one point I would disagree just a little bit. I think from everything I can tell that the people who run the biggest businesses in America, my experience, and I went to school with those people and I still interact with them a little bit, my understanding is they know very well what's going on. They understand that the way capitalism has evolved has produced an extraordinary concentration of wealth in a very small minority of the American people and that the vast majority understands, they think this way, understands that that's bad, understands even if it's only based on jealousy and envy that they are on the losing end of what's going on and somebody else, one of those rich people you see on TV, is in, in the driver's seat. And so they're worried, which happens to all small minorities that become very rich. They get to be worried that their extraordinary wealth is being looked at with envy, with resentment, with anger uh, by the mass of people. And so they decide they have to protect themselves against the mass of people, even if they aren't angry right now, they sure could become so, and that might go real quickly. And so, yes, they're going to support building up the police, building prisons, filling the prisons uh, as fast as they build them, the border guards, all of the things you mentioned, and quite rightly, they've even prepared these large camps just in case they have to arrest large numbers of people. You know, that's the image already of insurrection and of rebellion, there's a kind of awareness at the top that literally the way capitalism is developing, the way it's enriching them is impoverishing so many people that there's a kind of explosion lurking down the road. Yes, you know, you have the police for that and you have the military for that, but typically in fascism you also go and you organize the desperado people, the people who have no job, who don't care what they're doing or how they fit into society, the kind of people that become Nazis and so on in all countries who basically offer themselves as the foot soldiers uh, to carry out the, the transformation of society when those at the top uh, have decided that thuggery and repression is the way to hold on to their situation. There was a report, I'm trying to remember if it was an FBI report, that really just talked about the infiltration of white supremacists into police departments and the fact that maybe some of those same people you consider, you know, desperados, really they're able to get a badge. You get a yeah. badge and get yeah. a gun and all the rest of it. Absolutely, that would be a logical place. Unfortunately, not only a logical place for those desperados to go for their job, 
but it would be, you know, not so surprising to see police departments recruit those kinds of folks to be a kind of front line, the kind of people who can be convinced that it's reasonable to go beat up on somebody because of uh, their skin color or their political or religious or whatever uh, affiliation. You need a certain kind of person to do that. And yeah, they'll find each other, the the police and the, the fascistic inclined folks. That happened in Germany and Italy. And there's no reason to expect it wouldn't happen here. And all of these signs point in that direction. But I do believe, and it's not just because I'm an economist, I think, that the basis of all of this is an economic system that is making it harder and harder for a larger and larger majority of the people to have a decent life, Mm -hmm. to have a secure job, to be able to give something to your kids, to give them a leg up, to get an education and a job themselves. More and more people are having a harder and harder time doing that at the same time that a shrinking minority sits on top of unspeakable wealth. I'm kind of running out of time, so I want to try to get in my remaining questions for you. So I've heard a few people say that capitalism winds up being the best advertisement for socialism. And if you look at the new push, for example, for Medicaid for All introduced by Bernie Sanders on Wednesday or or really the the efforts that have been going on for years by John Conyers and the people who are advocating for single payer, you realize that the only reason they're having such success is because the for-profit health insurance industry have made people's lives so miserable. So I want to play a clip now of a nurse, Linda Johnson Camacho. She's an oncology nurse in Northern California, and she she spoke at the Bernie Sanders press conference this week about a patient of hers who couldn't afford her treatment. There are patients that I think about every day. One young woman still lives deep in my heart. Her cancer had metastasized, and her lungs filled with fluid consistently. She needed to have the fluid drained in order to breathe, to survive. I noticed she never completely emptied the bags, which meant her lungs never were all the way clear. When I asked why, it was because she could not afford to change the bag more than just once per day. These bags are very expensive, and her insurance did not cover the full cost. She was never able to take a deep breath, and she lived in constant distress and pain, struggling to breathe. And to make matters worse, the insurance policy soon renewed. That meant her annual deductible was in place, and she would have to pay the full amount of her medications and supplies until that deductible was met. That young woman spent the rest of her life in unnecessary stress, unnecessary pain, and unnecessary agony. She never again was able to take a full breath for the rest of her life. And as far as I'm concerned as a nurse, this is treatment denied. This is treatment she needed and deserved. Thank you. Thank you. So do you want to react to that? These sorts of stories are wonderful, horrible 
examples of a system that isn't working. The medical care system in the United States is a failure. And here's how I mean failure. We pay more for medical care in the United States than any other advanced industrial country. We pay roughly 18 to 19% of our total value of output every year is used to pay for medical care. No other country demands that of its people. No other country provides as shoddy uh, a medical care for the mass of people. I'm not talking for the super rich who get good care uh, for the mass of people as this story you just played the clip of indicates. It's outrageous. If you add to that, which we must, that people in America live less long uh, compared to other people in other countries who pay much less for medical care, that the percentage of children who die in the first year of their lives is higher here than it is in many other industrial countries who, again, spend much less on medical care than we do, then you have the following inescapable conclusion. The horrific profits of the medical industrial complex are achieved by high prices uh, charged to our people in exchange for mediocre health care. And it's a sign of the control that big business, in this case uh, hospitals, doctors, the drug companies, and so on, what they're able to do by controlling the government and not having the government buy drugs at a discount the way governments in most other industrial countries do, and so on. So it's, a, it's an illustration of the kind of soft uh, dominance of the government that big business has achieved, that we have uh, incidences of people dying because they can't afford the medical care that we overcharge as a nation for. It's always been a mystery to me why Americans who suffer the consequences of such a system remain unable or unwilling to mobilize themselves to change it. Similarly, like when we look at Houston in terms of what people were suffering even before Harvey, but now since post-Harvey, it seems like this perfect stew of corporate lack of regulation, uh, pollution, just the whole land grab in terms of building on wetlands and in floodplains. It's a, another example of kind of capitalism being the best advertisement for socialism. <laughs> that, that's right. It's the, look, socialism has always been the consequence of capitalism. Socialism has been the criticism of capitalism brought on to capitalism by the way in which capitalism works. Look, the, 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 the capitalists in charge in places like Houston have a name. They're called developers. They're the people, they're the banks, the construction companies, and all the others that are involved in building the roads, building the tracks of houses, building the shopping malls, and all of that. They want to be able to make money. They want to build the road and sell it to the government. They want to build the houses and sell it to the people. They want to build the shopping malls and sell it to the stores. As soon as they're done, they've made their profit, they're out of there. They don't want to be slowed down by having to answer the question, is it safe to build there? Will it be uh, flooded if we have a bad storm? Will you need to pay some taxes to build the walls or the other things to keep the water out? They don't want any of that. They don't want it because... Profit is what they're in business for. They don't want to pay the taxes. They don't want to be slowed down by rules and regulations that save people. They're in it for the profit, and then they leave. And this system doesn't work. 
you know, for a few years you can have your Houston work fine. And then it gets hit by one of these, and we're told that it's going to be 100 or $200 billion of losses. That there are going to be families that are fighting with insurance companies to get back into their own homes for years to come. It, the horror of it is only matched by the unnecessary nature of suffering like this. So I know you have done a lot of work in terms of the development of worker co-ops to kind of address the idea of who should benefit from work and, and workers actually owning the business and owning their work and owning the profits of their labor. So I know it's kind of shifting gears a little bit, but as, as I wind down, I want to know how can people, when they look at this issue of uh, fascism, be sure that new emerging models that people are creating won't also be won't also become bastions of white supremacy? I I was actually reading rereading uh, a People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. There was the, the development of these cooperatives, farmer cooperatives, in like Texas and different places in the 1800s. And one of the men I was trying to find his name. You know, some of these cooperatives became very exclusive and you know, very, you know, they were filled with racists, you know, and they didn't want to share that same type of cooperative spirit to other black people. They just wanted to keep it among themselves. So, you know, how do you how do we as we try to evolve and create other models to avoid going down the road of fascism? How do we keep new organizations and new models? No, I understand your question. I wish, I really do, and I mean this just as one person to another, I wish I could offer a guarantee that any kind of solution we come out of, uh, of a collapsing capitalism, which is what I think we're living through, I wish I could offer a guarantee that would have all the qualities that we want. I can't, and I'm not going to pretend that I can. Is it possible that a worker co-op movement could be infected by people who are racists who want uh, to preserve co-ops for white people or, or deny them to black people or keep them separate or however uh, their ideology uh, guides them. I not only don't I, can I guarantee that that won't happen, I expect it to happen a little bit. I expect that the very success of co-ops moving forward is going to lead to all kinds of people with whom I have the deepest political disagreements to try to catch hold of that train, to try to divert it, to try to shape it, uh, to be more consistent with their objectives uh, than with those of us who are at the forefront or starting this kind of a movement for, for worker co-ops as a, as a new economic system just like I expect the people in power in big capitalist corporations to try to stop us, to repress us, to demonize us, and all the rest. These are things that I think it would be naive not to expect, but I think if, if we expect them, uh, then we will plan for them, and then we will make be prepared with the arguments and the p mobilized people to not let that kind of thing happen. And as a concluding comment, let me tell you one of the places here in America where the, the worker co-op as a new model of economic development is at its most exciting space, and that's in Jackson, Mississippi, mm -hmm. uh, where the, the Lumumba group, the people who won the elections there in that uh, city, 
uh, have indicated and, and, and shown us that they are committed to basically say 150 years of capitalism America has left Mississippi uh, one of the poorest states in the country, uh, left behind in many, many ways. It's not a successful economic system for the people of Mississippi, white and black, uh, but particularly the African Americans. And we're going to go in a different direction. We're going to try to build an economy that's good for the people of our city and our state, uh, but that's based on a democratic, worker-owned and operated enterprise. That's an amazing thing to see in an American state, in an American city. And I like it because it puts African Americans in the forefront. It makes them the leaders, the model creators, the people that the rest of us, white and black and Latino and so on, uh, can learn from and can follow. And that may in the end be a, one of the most important ways to prevent the regression of a worker co-op movement to something with racist or other unwanted qualities. If we can see that some of the leadership of making this a broad movement in this country comes precisely in the, from the African-American community, which is able to be critical of capitalism because it's got such a raw deal from that system for so long. Okay, so do you have any other final thoughts before we sign off? No, I just would like to say that having this kind of a conversation on the air is an enormous, great service that you provide to your listeners and I would just want to congratulate you and the station for being as valuable in this time of change and of questioning that uh, you really ought to, people ought to take their hats off that there are folks like you making these kinds of programs to help people think through the situation. We'll all be better off the more we have these opportunities. Oh, well, thank you. And uh, thank you for joining me this morning. I've been speaking to Richard Wolf, Professor Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, and currently a visiting professor at the New School University in New York City. He's the author of several books, including Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown. He's also co-founder of the social justice organization Democracy at Work. Thank you for joining me, Professor Wolf. Thank you again, and uh, I hope we'll have a chance to resume the conversation in the future. Oh, I, I'm sure we will. Thank you. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guest, Richard Wolf, and also thank Chantel James and Michelle Roberts for their reporting this week. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can reach our show at onthegroundshow.org, where you can listen to all of our shows. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show. I'm Esther Averam, giving a special shout out to our newest listeners in Atlanta. Keep raising your voice. Peace.